Welcome to the Pathway Church Podcast, where you'll find fresh messages uploaded weekly. Pathway Church is a Bible-based church located in Peterborough, Ontario, and we're on a mission to reach people far from God and see them become devoted followers of Jesus. We hope that what you hear today will help you to take one step closer to Jesus. Thanks so much for joining us, and if you like what you hear, don't forget to subscribe. Great to see you all here. Thanks for uh, weathering the storm. I don't know what's going on, but uh, the last three Sundays, there's been just ice and snow on Saturday and Saturday night, just making it difficult for everyone to come out. So thanks for, uh, for making your way here today. If you uh, didn't get a chance to be here with us last week, we actually jumped into a brand new uh, message series. It's going to last about 10 weeks in length. And as I said last week, typically at Pathway Church, we, we teach topically. So each week, we're opening up a theme or we have a series of messages on a theme with this love, joy, faithfulness, marriage, whatever it is. And so we're opening up the scripture saying, what does God say about this? And we're learning practical tools and things that uh, will help us in our lives. So that's all very good and well. Uh, but there are times when we choose instead to go through a portion of scripture exegetically, which just simply means that we're walking through a portion of the Bible, verse by verse, line by line. And when we do so, what's, a number of things happen. Uh, number one, uh, it forces us into some conversations we might normally avoid. Like, oh, that's a topic we can just skip over and preach on this one. It's more fun. Uh, so it forces, forces me, the preacher, into some awkward corners sometimes, uh, which is good. Um, it also allows us to kind of learn some more of the, the context and history of the author, the people to whom it was written. So it's a great learning experience and uh, a great way to study the Bible because obviously uh, we don't just want to know uh, what the Bible says about a topic. We actually want to study the scriptures and be students of them. So no matter where you are in your faith journey, whether you've been in church your whole life or you're here for the first time ever, uh, we hope that there's something here, that something jumps out at you as we go through this, this letter that we're studying uh, I just believe that God will speak to all of us wherever we're at. And so today, uh, we're in week two of a study in a New Testament letter called Thessalonians. And uh, there was two letters written, and the weird name Thessalonians comes from uh, the port city in Greece called Thessalonica. And I think we have a little map here. Um, after Jesus' resurrection, the early church began to form. Uh, Paul goes on a series of missionary journeys. On his, this is a map of his second journey. And so he leaves Israel down on the bottom right and heads up through um, what would be Macedonia, and then into Greece, and you can see Italy and Rome. He ends up there on his third journey. So we've got this, this process, and you see him going around. And so it's in Thessalonica, uh, Paul and his partner Silvanus or Silas, these two gentlemen, um, they go to Philippi, and they're beaten with rods. Fun. They're arrested falsely under false pretenses. And then when they're, uh, when they're finally let go... Uh, they're, they're basically run out of town, and so they head to the next town of Thessalonica, and there they begin to do the very same thing. They begin to tell people about Jesus. And, of course, opposition arises. Uh, some of the Jews that were there accepted their message, and others wanted to run them out of town, and so they ended up having to leave. So we have this, these two letters, First and Second Thessalonians, because Paul and Silas and Timothy were there. They would later write to encourage the Christians, the believers in Jesus that were uh, living in this region. So that's, that's kind of where we're at. And uh, just in quick recap from last week. Last week we looked at the first chapter in which we have an introduction. And, and Paul really spends the first chapter saying this, I see God at work in you. And my challenge to you last week was to not just see where everyone else around you, your family, your friends, your church, where others lack. That's super easy. But rather to have this attitude where we're going, hey, where is God at work in the people around me? And let me call it out and encourage you in it. I see God at work in you. I saw what you just did. That's amazing. I see God at work in you. And Paul says, really, there are four things that they saw in the Thessalonians 
that I think are signs that your faith is true and genuine. How do you know if your faith is the real deal or a falk, a false falk? What is that? False, <laughs> fake. That was a combination of those two words. So how do you know? How do you know if your if your faith is genuine or not? He says, well, here's four things we see in you, Thessalonians, that we think prove that you're chosen by God and God's at work in you and all that. So here they are just quickly. Number one, sign number one, God is doing something in you. In this room, we have lots of people with very, very different stories about how God has, has worked in their life, how they came to faith. And I'll tell you that none of the stories are the same, but there's this one consistent theme. Everyone who is a true believer in Jesus, a Christian, a Christ follower would say, God has, has done and is doing something in me. It's, it's not something I do. It's something God is doing in me. And you, you just recognize it. You can't explain it. You just say, yeah, God's at work here. That's the first sign of a genuine faith. Sign number two, you begin behaving differently. Because if God's at work in you, it begins to change what comes out of you, right? It makes sense. So if God's working on your heart, then your behaviors change, but it's often way slower than we'd like. You know, we think that if someone, if someone believes in Jesus, that their whole life is transformed instantly, but often it's a process. And so we have to have patience with one another, encourage one another and all that. But it begins to change. Sign number three, you're continually making God the center of your life. Now, this is a battle we all will continue to face while we're on this earth, that there will be other things that want to take first priority in our lives. And we have to kind of surrender that and say, no, I'm going to put Jesus there. I'm going to put God in his rightful place. And it's a process, but a sign of genuine faith is that you're constantly willing and wanting to do that. Okay, that's the third one. Here's the last one. You're waiting with expectation for the return of Jesus. I shared the example of how sometimes I'll work from home because it's really quiet there and I'll be working on my sermon. And I started noticing uh, that around 3.30, our dog, which is somehow vacant all day, I can't find him, and all of a sudden our little dog Charlie makes his way into the living room, jumps on the windowsill, and he just sits there looking out with his tail wagging. I thought, what's going on? And then it dawned on me, the bus is about to come with the kids. And that dog knows. He just knows the time of day when that bus is coming. And he's just sitting there, wagging his tail. He just knows, he knows those kids are coming. And he's just anticipating their return. And, and what Paul is saying is, we know your faith is real because there's a desire in you to see Jesus. There's a desire in you for him to return. And, you know, for us, we have amazing lives in Canada, many of us. And so it's, it's easy to forget that there's something better. It's easy to forget that Jesus is coming back for us and... When there's a genuine faith, we, we see that desire for his return. So those are the four things. Paul says, we see this in you Thessalonians. These are signs of your faith. Now in the second chapter, as we jump in, what we're going to discover is that Paul and Silas are going to say, here's our resume. Uh, we want you to remember how we lived when we were with you. We want you to remember how we taught you. We want you to remember how we behaved, our attitude towards you. Why is he saying that? Because Paul and Silas want the Thessalonians to follow their example. And guess what? Every single one of us needs an example to follow, don't we? That's the title of my message, an example to follow. We need an example to follow. Most of what we know and most of what we've learned, we actually learned by watching other people. Even, even little babies, they sit there and they watch older siblings and parents, and they watch how they behave and interact and how they, and they try to emulate and imitate what you say. Did dad die? First word. Amazing. Da-da, right? And they, and they try to emulate and, and, and imitate what they see. And this continues to go on when they're 14, when they're 18, when you're 45. You see examples of others around you that you want to be like, and you begin to emulate them. This is how most of us learn, right? Most of us, uh, we don't learn by reading, uh, you know, line by line. If I were to give you an Ikea cabinet with a thousand parts that it comes with, and I was to give you the instruction manual with all the verbal instructions, but I cut out all the photographs. 
How many of you think you'd be successful without seeing how it goes together? See, we're visual learners. We, we have to see it. And there's something about that, right? There's something about seeing it done. Uh, I don't care whether you're in your career you're learning how to make pizza. You see somebody spinning the pizza and you, you get dough all over yourself and you, you figure it out and, you, and then you put all the sauce and the cheese and all those things. I don't even know, but I like to eat it. So you have all of that and you settle and it's perfect, right? And, and it's, it's a process you learn by watching. And that's true if you're a brain surgeon, right? Somebody didn't just give you a manual, say step one, two, three, four, and you just got in there with a scalpel and started trying stuff. No, it's years and years and years and years of watching someone do it and, and doing it alongside them and watching and learning and watching and learning. And if this is true, if that's how we learn language, if that's how we learn to do our job, if that's how we learn to socialize, then it's probably also the way we learn to live out our faith. And, and this is true, isn't it? Like how we live amongst one another, how we treat one another, we're learning that. And that's why I say, like, if you want to be a great parent, the best thing you can do is find a godly set of parents or a godly parent, a godly person, and begin to emulate what they do. Begin to learn from them. See their example. If you want to be a great husband, a great wife, a great friend, find somebody who is that, get around them, watch them, and learn from their example. Because there's something about seeing it done, isn't there? And Paul and Silas are like, hey, we were there with you. We cared for you. We led you. Hey, watch what we did. Remember our example and then follow our example. So today, as we go through a portion of uh, the second chapter, we're going to really draw out four signs of maturing faith. Last week, we saw four signs of genuine faith. Like, here's how you know that your faith has started. The little seed has started to sprout. It's alive. Now we're going to learn from Paul and Silas's example what it looks like for faith to develop towards maturity. What are some of the markers and signs of that? What are some of the attitudes that, that when this message is rooted in our heart should produce? That's what we're trying to do. And so uh, as we look at these, and before we jump into them, a uh, couple things I want us to consider. Number one, what would these attitudes look like if we lived them out personally? Secondly, what would these attitudes and these signs of maturity look like if we lived them out together as a, a church community, as a family? Okay, so those are the two questions we're kind of asking as we go through these four signs of a maturing faith. You ready for this? So much excitement. Yes, somebody's with me. First Thessalonians, uh, we're in chapter 2, and we're going to begin in, in verse 1. Here's what it says. For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain. We weren't wasting our time when we came. But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, which I explained to you, as you know... We had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. In other words, you guys know our story. We came to you, and we were bruised and beaten. And you know how the Jews that didn't like our message arose and ran us out of town when we were in Thessalonica. And they're like, hey, can we tell you why we didn't quit? Can we tell you why in the midst of people chasing us, hunting us, that we continued to tell you about Jesus and that we came and they're going to tell us why. It's, this, is a, this is a sign of maturity and growth in the Lord. Here's what they say in verse 3. Our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive. There's, there's no wrong motives here. But just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, this message about Jesus, so we speak, and here's the key, not to please man, but to please God who tests the hearts. So they said... The reason why we endured what we endured, the reason why we came and preached, even risking our own lives, was not because there was anything for us to gain, but because we wanted to please God and not man. And here's the question I want to ask you today. 
Can you say that about yourself? Can I say that? That I want to please God more than I want to please people. I remember as a kid, uh, my dad's a pastor. Some of you know that. And uh, at times we'd go out for dinner on occasion. So we'd be in Swiss Chalet or some restaurant. And as a 13-year-old boy, my dad would say, Okay, it's time to pray for the food. He's French. So I kind of have like a French-German thing going. But it was, it was you get the point. I knew it was coming when he said, Okay. You know, and so, and so we'd, we'd all hold hands and we bow, you know, in the Swiss chalet. And the thing I remember about those prayers is that they were way too long, <laughs> you know? <laughs> like, bless the food, amen. That's what I would want to do. But my dad would go, oh, thank you for this and the weather and for grandma. And, all, and it's just like, okay. And then as my dad's praying and we're kind of in this little huddle around the table, I'm looking over my shoulder Wondering if anybody I know is there, maybe some of the kids from my hockey team are going to see me praying with my family, how weird, and I was worried about what other people thought. And you might think, oh, how childish, but let me tell you something. <laughs> um, we should care what people think, okay? Like, if you don't care what anybody thinks, you're not matured, you're foolish. Like, if you don't care what your parents think, your friends think, your spouse thinks, you're a sociopath. Like, you really are. Like, you don't care what any... Like, we're social, we're social creatures. We are designed to live in community, which means that we, we re- react and respond to one another. Like, if our friends are like, hey, that was really dumb, and we should feel bad and be like, yeah, you're right, thanks for... And you kind of, like, come back to the center, and we kind of push and pull on one another. And so we should care what the people around us think. We should. That's normal. But we should care what God thinks more. So it's, it's not maturity to be like, I don't care what anybody thinks. I've got a Bible verse. And you go around destroying people. That's not maturity. Okay? Maturity is, yes, I care what you think. I care how you're hearing this. I care how I'm communicating to you. But I care more about what God thinks than what people think. So I'm not going to let what people think control me. Whether it's what I'm doing, whether it's who I'm hanging out with, or any of that. And that's a huge distinction. When you care more about what God thinks than what other people think. And this is true. You'll, dis- you'll discover whether this is true of you or not uh, in a couple of situations. One, when things get really hard. When it becomes really hard to obey God, then you have to decide whether you really care about what God says or what people say. Right? That's what Paul, that's the point Paul made. Another way that you'll discover if you want to please God more or man more is when nobody's looking. Okay? So nobody sees like, oh, I could steal that iPhone. You know? And, and nobody's going to know, nobody's going to see, I'm never going to get caught, I'm confident of it, and I say, no, I'm not touching that. Why? Because I actually care what God thinks. So I'm going to do, I'm not going to do the wrong thing because I care what God thinks. Same is true when we do the right thing. If you help somebody, and nobody notices, and nobody's like, oh, you're so amazing. Yeah. And if nobody says that, and nobody's going to notice, and you still go ahead and serve, and give, and help, it's likely because you care what God thinks. And that's what's important, right? And so we're talking about motives here. And motives are tricky. Because you can't see motives. You can't measure motives. You can measure your weight. You can measure physical strength. But you can't measure motives. You can see what people do. And you go, oh, that was bad. That was good. And, and it's fun to judge other people, right? You know, you know you're all doing it in your minds. And you're trying not to, right? But we just naturally see what others do. And we're like, oh, yeah, I know why they did that. No, no you don't. Because there's motives underneath. We can't measure them, but, but God examines the heart, and God weighs our motives. And so when Jesus came and he was teaching to his disciples, his, his Sermon on the Mount, he said things like this. He says, when you pray, instead of blowing a trumpet, everybody, <clears throat> I'm about to pray to the Lord. Watch this. I'm spiritual. 
Father in heaven, the thou. Right? So instead of being this, this dramatic outward thing, so everyone will be like, oh, you're so spiritual. He says, go in your closet where nobody sees, and there pray to your Father in heaven, and he'll, and he'll reward you. Why? It's a motive test. He's not saying don't pray as a church. He's not saying don't pray with your kids. He's saying you have to check your motives. And if you're praying for the wrong reason, if you're praying to God just so your kids can see you, it's the wrong reason. You see? He said, hey, when you're giving to the needy, don't let your right hand know what your left hand is doing or left hand know what your... I can never remember which hand is which. But he's like, it's, it's not just say that you can't celebrate when you do something good. It's not saying that... I mean, the Bible's full of stories of all the good things Jesus did. They weren't all in secret. The point is, it's a motive conversation. He's saying, why are you doing what you're doing? And as a church, we can't measure it. As parents, you can't measure your kids' motives, right? So that's why it's, it's a work of God, and it has to be happening from the inside out, okay? So here's what we want to do. Um, as we begin this conversation, we're talking about caring more about what God thinks than what people think. It's kind of a sign of maturity, faith growing in us. We continue in verse 5. He says this, For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed, God is witness. Let me just stop for a second. What he's saying is, we weren't trying to get something from you. That's a big idea. You kind of have this sensor, right, built inside of your psyche. If someone's trying to get something from you, you kind of know, don't you? And Paul's saying, we didn't want to take anything from you. God is witness. And then he continues. Nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. His point? We came to Thessalonia, and we... And we were serving you, teaching you. And it would have been right for us to ask for you to give us a place to live and pay for our food and help us. So we're meeting your spiritual needs. You meet our physical needs. You guys know that's, that's normal, right? Like you help somebody, a friend, they help you back. That's totally normal. That's the way relationships work. People, people, yeah, it's true. And people in this church, they give financially to this church. And the money goes into the mission and the programs and the ministries. But it also goes to some of our staff to help them feed their families so that they can show up every day and serve the church. And that's right. And Paul's saying, when we came to you, we didn't ask for anything from you. He says instead, in verse 7, he says, we were gentle among you. And notice this phrase, this imagery, like a nursing mother. Not mother of a teenager. Like a nursing mother, okay? So get that image in your head, because there's, there's a reason for that. <coughs> Like a nursing mother taking care of her own children, so being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel, but also our own selves because you became very dear to us. What does a nursing mom do? She feeds and sustains the child, the baby, from her own body. Okay? And out of her flows water, nutrients, all the things the baby needs. It's a one-way relationship. Give. The baby's not giving anything back. As they get older, you expect your kids to contribute, and there's a process of growth. But as a baby, they just receive. And Paul says, when we showed up, we came to you with this attitude of give. We came to you this attitude of pour into you. And, and the way I'm phrasing it is this, and this is a sign of maturity in the faith. This is a sign that you're moving in the right direction, that you want something for people more than from people. Right? Because here's the gospel in a nutshell. God so loved the world that he, what? Gave his only son. That he gave. And Jesus came and he made himself nothing. And he gave his life and he poured into us and he gives, offers forgiveness and hope and salvation. And even on the cross, when, when sinful people like you and me had nailed him to the cross, 
So like, oh, those Romans, they killed you. No, sinners like us killed him. And he's on the cross, and what does he say? Father, forgive them. They know not. He's still pouring out forgiveness as we're killing him. He gave, he gave, he gave. So here's the point. When someone receives the gospel, when they believe that Jesus gave his life for, for me, and, it, and that seed gets planted in your heart, guess what happens when that seed grows? It produces a heart to give. It produces a heart that doesn't say, what can you give me? It says, what can I give? How can I be for you? And notice I said, want something for you more than from you. Because again, relationship dictates that we give and receive in relationship. True? If you're in a marriage, you give and you receive. But the gospel says, I, I want something for you more than I want something from you. That's at the heart of it. As a pastor, I've had the opportunity to do lots of wedding ceremonies. And every time I marry a couple, I always come around to this idea in preparation for the wedding day. Say, I want you to know marriage is not a 50-50 proposition. It is not I give half, you give half, and together we have a whole. I give 50%, and you give 50%, and together we have what we need. No. The proposition of a biblical marriage, and again, this is an ideal and an aim. We're all going to fall short. But the, the proposition is this. I give you all of me. 100 to 100. And I am for you, and I want something for you more than I want something from you. And the moment that you can say that, and the moment you make that your goal as you enter into a marriage, a family relationship, anything of significance, it changes the whole outlook on the thing, right? Because you're saying, hey, I give you everything, and I want something more for you than I want to receive from you. You know, uh, as I was thinking about this idea... um, as a parent, my wife and I have four kids, um, ages 9 through 17. And one of the things I've noticed is that nobody loves my kids more than my wife and I. You think that's fair? Well, maybe God, but, you know. Nobody loves your kids, if you have kids, more than you. And what's interesting to me is as I thought about this, I, I think, oh, how much my, my wife and I have sacrificed for our children. We, we spent time, money invested, tears, joy vacations, homework, cleaning their messes, fighting with them to do the right thing. You you get the deal. You invest, 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 invest in your kids. And then you tell them, like, hey, this is something you need to know. And they're like, yeah, whatever. You don't know anything. (laughs) Maybe I'm the only one who's experienced that. But my kids have said those types of things. And it used to really, really, really bother me when they come home from church or youth group or retreat. And some leader there told them the very same thing my wife and I have been saying for years, and it's like, their mind is blown. And they're like, you wouldn't believe God changed my life when they said this. I'm thinking, I've been saying that at the kitchen table for years, right? And it used to bother me. It's like, how could you listen to them and not listen to me? Like, this is selfish Nathan, right? Talking is like, how are they getting the credit for my work, right? Um, Yeah. (laughs) Fair enough. And... And I've, and I've wrestled with that for years. And, but, you know, lately I've come to this understanding uh, that's really helped me. Maybe it'll help you. One of the reasons why our kids sometimes won't, won't give us the weight that maybe we deserve as parents is because they understand intuitively that there are strings attached to the relationship. Here's what I mean. If my kids are successful, straight-A students, never get into trouble, everyone loves them, guess what that does for my image? pretty good, right? I'm like, oh, yeah, parent of the year. Who wants a parenting class? I'll teach it, right? Like, I'm thinking that because my kids are doing so well. When my kids start sliding into drugs, depression, they're failing, they're getting into trouble, they're getting, you know, they get the cops call. I feel like a failure. So my identity is connected to my kids, and they know it. 
They can't articulate it, but you can, a two-year-old in the grocery store knows that mom or dad's identity is connected to that kid's behavior, right? They're like, chocolate. You're like, no way. Wah! And you're like, chocolate, right? Because you look bad. And they know it from a young age. And you think they don't know when they're teenagers? Of course they do. I'm saying this for this reason. Number one, I believe that the family unit, parents, grandparents, aunts, uncles, all that, is the primary way in which faith is developed socially. All of those things are... Family is more important than we... I think our culture has lost sight of the importance of family. Let me just say that. But I also believe there is an extremely important place for outside voices. So when someone who is not connected to my kid, who, who won't, uh, whose success and failure isn't determined by my kid's behavior comes in and speaks into their life, it means something different. Because my kid and your kid know there's no strings attached. And this isn't just true for kids. You and I, we need mentors. We need people in our life who can look at us objectively and say, and speak into our lives. And they have nothing to gain by investing us, and nothing to lose, and yet they're for us. Have you ever experienced the power of somebody who's truly for you? Just for you. They're not trying to get anything from you. They're just leaning in and pouring into you. It's the most powerful thing in the world. It's the gospel at its heart. We do. And so, as, as individuals, can we be for others? Can we have that heart? Can we see that develop in us? And as a church community, can we be for the people around us, and lean in and pour into them. It's a powerful thing. We continue in verse 9. He says this, For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We work night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaim to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses, and God also, how holy, righteous, and blameless was our conduct towards you believers. They wouldn't eat food that would offend people. They wouldn't do things that would offend people so that they wouldn't hear the gospel. In fact, they said, you know, we could have, as I mentioned earlier, we could have asked for money. We didn't. We worked two jobs so we could feed ourselves so that you wouldn't think we were coming to tell you about Jesus for money. It's powerful. And I'll tell you, one of the signs of maturity in the faith that's growing inside of you is that you are willing to remove obstacles for other people to come to faith. <laughs> it, it stops being about your preference and it starts being about other people's progress. You know, I think the best example of it is a grandmother taking her grandkids to a rap concert strobe lights, disco, smoke, and they're just standing in the back watching their kids have fun and being like, yeah, this is what it's about. This is not about me. It's not about my preference. And you know, I, I like to say it this way. The mission is always more important than the model. The mission is always more important than the model. You could choose. We're, we're in a church today. We have a model. We have chairs, lights, types of music, kids programs. All of that's model. The mission is seeing people grow in their faith in Christ and coming to know him. That's the mission. Growing in faith. If we're not doing that, we're missing it. And if we're doing that and we have to change the model to continue to do that better, then we'll do that. And we have people in the church that would love to just have an organ and hymns, but you're here because you see the young people coming to faith and you're like, it doesn't matter about my preference. I want to see progress. I want to see other people coming to faith and you're funding it and you're serving and you're helping in it, even though it's I, my preference for music. I, I really like country. I really like country music, but we're not doing country music. It's not about my preference. It's about people coming to faith. And so that's the question. And so, you know, what will Pathway Church look like in 10 years from now? I don't know. Hopefully we're seeing young people and families and individuals of every age and stage come into faith. And if we've got to change our format, our location, the way we do it, our timelines, we'll change it all. The mission is greater than the model. And sometimes um, the model can become sacred. The way we worship can become sacred. And, and we lose sight of the mission. 
And so we want to continue to be a mission-focused church. And, and Paul was like, hey, to, to, the, to the Jews, I became a Jew. He put on his prayer shawl, and he would open the Old Testament and show them about Jesus. To the Greeks, he would show up, and he, he'd put on a toga or whatever he would do, and he would talk to them using their own authors, philosophy, and religion to point them to Jesus. Whatever it took for the mission, whatever it took. So would we have a heart that is willing to do whatever it takes to remove obstacles, even, even if it bothers our preference, to help others move forward in faith? Would we be a church that would be willing to do that? Finally, in verse 11, he concludes in this way. For you know how, like a father with his children, we exhorted each of you. That word exhortation means to draw in, to pull in like a huddle. You know how you do a sports huddle. Everyone comes in. Come on, come on in, little children. Like a father, we would we'd bring you in, and then we'd encourage you. Way to go. Keep it up. And charge you to walk in a manner worthy of God. Here's some things you need to correct and fix. They would instruct them. And that's important too. You know, we all need encouragement, but sometimes we need someone to give us a kick in the butt. We need someone to say, no, 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 bad attitude, knock it off. We need someone that we love and trust who can speak into our lives and be like, you're way off track, buddy. We need that. We all need it. And Paul says, hey, we, we did that for you, but we did it in a loving way. We came to you and we loved you like a father, encouraging, directing. Verse 13, and we also thank God constantly for this. When you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. Here's the final kind of characteristic of maturing faith. It leads through love and relationship. We don't need a bunch of people running around telling one else what they're doing wrong. We need people that lead us through love and relationship to direct us. Like a father correcting a child. But here's the thing, that only works if that correction is coming in a loving way built on relationship, and it only works if there's a humility in us to receive it. So you can come to church and be like, I just want community. I want people to love me, and I want people to speak into my life and correct me, but if you're not humble enough to receive it, you'll never have it. So we need people to speak into our lives, but we need them to do it in the right way, not judgmentally, but in a loving, fatherly, caring way, and we have to have the humility to say, yes, I hear it's God speaking through you, and I receive it as God's word. These are signs of maturity. You know, signs of maturity are, are things that we can aim for. These are the examples that Paul and Silas and Timothy said, here's how we lived. Lived like this. And so may God continue to produce these things in us as we move forward, both as individuals and as a church. What I want to do is uh, I want to pray. And, um, and then we've got a, a special little presentation uh, that we want you to see. Let, let's, let's pray together. Father. Thank you for every person in this place. And Lord, no matter where a person is on their journey of faith, maybe, maybe you've never even heard about Jesus' love for, for them, that God, today we would receive that love poured out on the cross. That seed would get planted in our heart and begin to produce in us a life of love. Help us, Father, to be the type of people, the type of church that removes obstacles for others to come to faith. Help us to be a people and a church that are, that are for other people more than what we want from them. God, help us to lead through love and encouragement as we help one another along this journey. Father, thank you for the work that you're doing in each one of us. May you bring it to completion as we move forward in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, today, I um, just want to close our service with a, with a small presentation. This, this week is really a week when, when there's a, a significant focus on mental health. Uh, Bell Let's Talk uh, will be happening a little later in the week. And 
January's a difficult month, a difficult time for a lot of folks, and it's a great time to talk about the fact that just like our bodies can be really, really healthy and well and can be really in a rough spot, uh, mentally, we can be in a lot of different positions as far as our mental health, anxiety, depression, and a whole host of other things. And, and of course, the Bible isn't silent on the subject, and the church is a place where community happens and this message today wasn't about mental health but i'll tell you what if the culture of the church is healthy and people are in deep relationships a a lot of help happens through that Uh, but we understand also that there are other uh, steps and processes and things and so as a church for the last couple years we've been working on implementing some programs and getting to the resources for those who struggle with mental health anxiety and different things and so um, today as we close the service, um, Jason's going to sing a song for us that is really a, a hymn of lament. We don't sing a lot of those in church, usually rejoicing songs, but the, the scriptures are full of songs where people say, God, where are you right now? Why can't I find you? And, and so this song really just kind of points to that questioning that we have. And then at the end of the song, uh, Kathy Bell is going to come up and she's been spearheading, putting together resources and uh, groups and things like that to help. Uh, folks to walk through and to support them in practical ways. So let Jason sing and Kathy will come. I cannot sing So in your presence, in 
such a beautiful song. Thanks so much, Jason. So I just wanted to share uh, a few things. So just for over two years, Pathway has had a group of women meeting every Tuesday morning to pray and to study and to encourage each other through the challenges of living with anxiety and depression. And this group continues to be a, uh, an important part of the healing for the women who attend. Last February, we hosted three sessions during the second service, sharing information about mental illness, learning more about anxiety, depression, and addiction. For those looking to learn more, there's some great new video series on Right Now Media. One is called Compass and Light, and it shares general information about different types of mental illnesses, as well as some personal stories to help give you a greater understanding. And another one is <coughs> called A Healing Mind with Dr. Henry Cloud. So this fall, we ran our first Hope and Resilience sessions. The goal of this group was for those attending to see themselves as children of God and to know how much they are loved by their Heavenly Father. We also tr try to provide many different supports and resources so that each person can find something that works for them. The beauty of being part of a community is sharing and encouraging each other with what has worked for us and where we still struggle and doing so without judgment. We pray for each other, and each session provides scripture to encourage and support us during this journey. We use a whole health approach, knowing that physical, mental, emotional, and spiritual health are all tied together. I ask those who currently attend our Tuesday morning, as well as our first Hope and Resilience session, how they feel that they benefited from, from this experience. So three things came through in everybody's answers. And number one was community, a safe and positive space to share and build relationships, to know you're not alone and to encourage each other as well as to be encouraged by others. Number two was faith and how important their faith is as part of their healing journey. Number three was learning new tools and resources to help them on their journey. So we're planning to host another session this spring if there are people interested and it would run for eight weeks. And if you need support then, I would say to you, please reach out to someone and know that you are not alone. We also have a pamphlet that is available this morning on the welcome table. And the pamphlet sh um, shares a number of local resources as well as some encouraging scriptures. So this week, as Nathan has mentioned, is Bell Let's Talk Day. And so I just want to encourage everyone to do just that, talk. If you're dealing with anxiety, hey, I can't see anymore. <laughs> If you're dealing with anxiety, depression, an eating disorder, addiction, thoughts of suicide, tell someone. Find a safe person, a friend, a teacher, someone in your life group, or your pastor. We're talking about this day, this today, to encourage everyone to feel that this place here is a safe community that we can share and carry each other's burdens. So one of the verses that we talk about in our very first week is Romans 5, verse 13, and I want to share that with you. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. One of the resources we use when we put this material together is Journey Towards Hope, and I just want to end with um, a few words from that book. No matter where you are on this journey, hope says you are loved. Hope says you have a purpose. Hope says you belong. Hope says you have a choice. Hope says you are loved, and we cannot imagine this life without you. And as I shared from Romans, our God is that God of hope. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Pathway Church Podcast. If you'd like to reach out to us, go to our website, pathwaylife.com. And as always, don't forget to subscribe. See you next week.